Hey guys, you're listening to Metal Matters, a weekly gimme radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. You guys seem to like the point of entry pilot from a few weeks ago. So we're unleashing another one. This week we have Jarrett Pritchard, one of the hardest working dudes I know. I met Jarrett a few years ago when he was tour managing 1349. Over the years, our paths have crossed on numerous occasions. He's a sick guitarist and songwriter, as well as a producer, tour manager, and a master of a host of other behind-the-scenes action. Jarrett was plugged into the early 90s Florida death metal scene with the seminal band Eulogy, which featured members that would go on to be in Monstrosity, Malevolent Creation, Cannibal Corpse, and Brutality. He continues creating killer death metal with his band Pulcro Morte. I was actually just listening to uh, Pulcro Morte um, before we had this conversation. So you're working on new material? Well, yeah, we're we're in the studio doing the uh, next record. Nice. I mean, I, I was in Clay and I, Clayton, the drummer, and I were up at Earth Analog for um, a little bit under a week and doing the drums and then jason the vocalist and jeff the other guitar player um drove down uh, from uh, st louis and met me here i had to go to montreal to do that Tripicon show came out of montreal landed in chicago drove from chicago to here and um we just started like immediately like we started yesterday um just getting guitar sounds and stuff we have uh 11 songs done for a new record and so we're working on it right now that's awesome you're you're not home a whole lot so uh how do you work all this in <laughs> wow <laughs> i think that i'm like one of those rare beings that like understands that this is a gift like being able to be a part of all these things and and, and do all these things and so I kind of feel like that if I stop, it'll be insulting to the the way that things are laid out. And so I, the only way I can answer that is I just don't stop. Like I just, I don't, I just don't stop. Like I was home. I had been on tour with Keeper Sutherland for like nine weeks. I came home. I built my silk screening shop for this posters and, and shirts and stuff that I'm doing on my own. And I basically printed the posters for the show we were playing. I jumped in the car. I drove out of Florida to get away from the hurricane so I wouldn't be trapped here. Landed in St. Louis, got out of the car, went inside with Clay, sat down, listened to the entire record, went through it, rearranged a bunch of stuff, went into rehearsal the next day, played Pull Terror Assault the next day, drove to my girlfriend's house in Chicago the next day, did a bunch of emails, started advancing a tour, Jumped on, an, you know, like jumped in the car, drove down to Tolono, spent the week in the studio, got out of the studio, drove back to Chicago, jumped in an airplane, went to Montreal, mixed possessed aspects and Tripticon, had my guitar player or guitar tech pull his shoulder out of socket, got him to the hospital, got back in time for the show, did the gig, <laughs> jumped on the plane. Then you know drove from Chicago to here and immediately into the studio and it and the only answer I can give you is, is that you just can't 
you just can't stop. And I don't know what I, I don't know what the fuck I would do with myself if I wasn't doing this, man. I mean, it's, it's kind of like all I, all I do. Let's do a quick accounting of all this activity because when I met you, it was on the 1349 tour and you were doing uh, TM and uh, sound. But yep. uh, you're, I later learned that in addition to being, you know, a tour manager, sound engineer, you have all these other uh, things, these other hats that you wear. And uh, not only do you do you tour with extreme metal bands like 1349, Goat Horror, Triptychon, but you just dropped Kiefer Sutherland's name as being out on the road with him as well. So you're a sound engineer, producer, tour manager, musician. Now, and it, you just mentioned uh, a T-shirt um, screen printing uh, guy. So uh, what what am I forgetting here? <laughs> um, a dad. Oh, oh okay. Wow. See, I didn't know that. Yeah, no, my children are older now. They're 21. Uh, they're twins. Uh, they've lived with me since I split up with their mom when they were 11, and they're uh, both in college. And um, uh, as funny as it is, for as much as I work and travel and everything, that's a, still a pretty big part of who I am. Luckily they're very self-sufficient now and they can do their own thing, but it, it's still in there. And, um, when I found out I was going to have kids, um, kind of everything stopped. Like I, I stopped touring. I pretty much stopped everything. Um, and went and mixed, basically I went and mixed television for the discovery channel for oh, wow. a long time and, and then taught at a college. I taught large format recording and sound for film, uh, at a college. And that mostly had to do with just wanting to be home and like, you know, like take care of my kiddos. And when they got old enough to, for me to be able to explain what was happening, by the time they were about 10 or 11, that's when I started going back on the road and getting active again, because I wanted to put in that time with them and get that foundation built. But that didn't erase who I was. It's yeah. just something that I felt was super important to do. And my first tour out of retirement, as hilarious as this is, was 1349, Carcass, Suffocation, and um, who did we have? I think we had like a boarded and rotten sound. And it was like the first time Carcass had toured in like a really long time. So it's funny because I took all this time off. And the minute that I came back, like I came out swinging. Like it was, you know what I mean? Yeah, it was totally. go time. <laughs> No. Anyway, yeah. So that that that's kind of I guess that's all the different weird stuff that I get into. Yeah. I, I I'm just, I'm still intrigued by the screen printing thing. Do you also do art as well, or just or screen printing, or what? What's that all about? Well, I got interested in that as a when I was in in school and stuff, and I'm just. I'm not, I can't draw. So let's just get that clear right away. Like I absolutely suck at drawing, but I'm pretty okay at like graphic layout and design. Yeah. And I like, I, you know, I always like printed shirts. Like for a long time, like if you saw a eulogy shirt because they didn't exist, like you knew that it came from me because it was the only place that they were, you know? So like if you saw someone like in a picture, like wearing one or something like, it's not like they bought it off the internet. Like it only came from me. And I kind of like that. And you know, the, it, the whole silkscreen thing, I'm super into posters and flyers. I think concert posters and flyers are something special. I think they're a dead art 
I think that there's a certain magic to when I was a kid, when I would walk down, you know, Hampton Boulevard in Norfolk, Virginia, where I'm from, and, you know, discover that a show was happening by a piece of paper nailed to a telephone pole. And there's something to that. And, and now there are collections and monuments to, to a time of people like doing, you know, their own thing, like creating something that wasn't there, where, you know, in punk rock and hardcore and stuff. And the flyers are sort of relics from that era. And so I'm really into it. And so I wanted to print posters. Like I just got really fascinated with that. And so I've just started making posters for the Polka and, um, there's, uh, it hasn't been announced yet, but I mean, I don't care. I'll, I'll say it. there's going to be two limited edition 1349 posters, um, that are being done. And, um, you know, like, well, I make, basically I make Polka Morte's merchandise, uh, in my little shop in my garage. You know, I've got like a, a big press and a washout booth and a conveyor dryer. And I, that's, that's like what I do to relax because it doesn't make any sound. Everything else I do is, is so loud. So with Polka Morte, let's talk about that. Um, you guys have this new record that you're recording right now. And, uh, when do you think that's going to be out? Um, well, it, it'll be done by the end of the year. There's about to be a lull. Um, basically I'm getting guitars and full side. Like I said, I have them here. Uh, the three of us are working pretty hard till the end of the month. And then I go into just a brutal schedule. Like I'm leaving September 25th. I'm going to do Europe with Keeper Sutherland again until October 22nd. I come home. I land in the U.S. Two days later, I'm out with 1349. And while we're out, is actually playing some of those shows. And then as soon as I'm done with that, I'm back out on the road with Keeper Sutherland. And I get home probably around December 18th. And so then... As soon as I get home, we're going to pick up doing bass on the record with Dylan from Withered, who plays bass for us. Then I'll probably start mixing it like right away, like at the beginning of January, depending a lot on what we decide to do next. Because right now we release them. Um, basically, we're releasing them ourselves, but under the Ceremonial Records letterhead, which is a label that belongs to my friends in Brutality. Oh, cool. um, but but we've been getting some offers because I don't know if you know, but I also play in brutality. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know you were in brutality, man. That band's sick. I love that band. Their band is still that core of Jay and Scott and Jeff and Ronnie Palmer plays drums and he's really great. And, um, you know, we played the, you know, Maryland death fest last year, you know, I was there. And then if a festival or something comes up, I, you know, I, I go and I play the second guitar within that, like Polker does uh, our records through ceremonial, but we've been getting, uh, some offers that make sense this time. The first album, none of the offers made sense. They were just people that wanted to own everything. They wanted to give nothing. And that isn't how we do this. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm old punk rocker. I mean, Black Flag's my favorite thing in the universe. I think Black Flag's the most important musical movement that has happened in my lifetime. And I think there's a lot to learn there. And so I wasn't going to sign this band away. Because I don't care. Because I'm making music for me. I'm making music to jam with my friends. I'm, you know, I'm making music for anybody that's interested. But mostly, I'm making music for me. 
So, you know, the notion of like needing a record label to run out and make me a big star is a fucking crock of shit. I don't have any interest in that whatsoever. Now I've gotten some people that are talking about some different types of things about working more as of a, like a partnership and then support to get the next record out and further out there, you know, to more people than I can personally do myself. So that's real interesting. And, and um, we're kind of going through that right now, like trying to figure out if we want to partner up with somebody or whatever, but I can't imagine that it would be any later than spring. Yeah. That sounds reasonable being that as we're talking right now, it's uh, the middle of September, but yeah, that that's a pretty generous amount of time, I think. Yeah, it's just a pain in the ass with having to leave for chunks of time and, and go out and, you know, work and, and, and do things. And, I mean, I, I guess I say it's a pain in the ass. It's only a pain in the ass because I can't stay in one place and, like, really lock in on this for a period of time. I have to break it up a little bit, but that's just how it is. So the crux of this episode, this is uh, one another one of the point of entry episodes that we started. And uh, the whole concept behind this is talking about the short list of records that drew us into this type of music. And um, we did a pilot episode. It came out uh, this week, actually. And uh, I just wanted to talk to you because you you and I are similar in age. Uh, I think that we might have a lot of the same sort of influences. But uh, in your own words, man, I want to hear some of the, the backstory of what got you into extreme music or punk or hardcore or whatever you want to call it like what were the the sort of teasers that drew you in oh i mean i i you know i, I wrote a list of uh of uh <laughs> the metal aspect of things and now i get to tell the truth that's yeah. fantastic yeah just the whatever whatever i mean like um well it's, to me it's all related so it starts, and every time I go back and listen to the record, I understand what a drastic effect this had on me, but it starts beyond a shadow of a doubt with Queen's News of the World record. Okay. I did a television commercial when I was like four. My mom like, was you know, like an actress, and she put me in a television commercial, and I got money. I got paid $40, and that would have been in about 78 or something, and... um I had $40 and my parents, you know, being parents, they were like, you have to have a savings account or whatever. And I was like, but I need money. I need $4, you know, because I had older aunts and uncles that like turned me on to music and I had been turned on to this record. So when I go back and I listen to news of the world specifically and very specifically fight from the inside and sheer heart attack, I mean, there's your speed, there's your down picking, there's your, you know, reversal of vibe, like on the one, you know, going from the upbeat to the downbeat. I mean, so Queen News of the World is a big one. And, you know, and then like every other kid in the 70s, I mean, naturally Kiss and Destroyer. I mean, the, the, those kind of started it. But, you know, when I saw Kiss on my, Aunt Ruth Ann's walls when I was about five years old. You know, I never said, like, I want to listen to that or, you know, like, oh, I need that record. Like, I saw that and I was like, I'm going to do that. Like, I'm going to be that. Like, yeah. that's what I'm going to do. 
you know, and, and because of Kiss, I mean, and my, you know, my parents, my dad played music and stuff, but probably Kiss is where I got where I was going to play guitars. Yeah, Ace but, Freely and, uh, you know. Dude, so much, so much Ace Freely. <laughs> yeah. But he was the coolest member, in my opinion, of the band. Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, Space Ace and, like, even now, like, if I hear that remix of Destroyer where they took a lead off of Flaming Youth, like, I get really irritated. Yeah. Where, like, they swapped out the lead take. Like, I get super irritated because, like, that's, like that riff, like that riff is just stomping, you know, for like a little kid, you're like running around your room, jumping on your bed, going, ah, you know, freaking out. And that's, you know, that was a big one. That was a huge one for me. Well, real quick um, about Queen, the uh, Brian, Brian May is like the most metal, like non-metal guy, really. I mean, as far as his guitar playing goes and the sounds that he got us and specifically on that record too there was like this really kind of gnarly like when his solos they were like very raw and kind of piercing on the on uh, news of the world i thought i mean ab- absolutely and and not only that but his fast picking yeah and down picking i mean if if the germs are truly one of the three sparks that start hardcore, not what we think of today, but what we would have called hardcore in the early eighties. If the germs are one of those sparks, then that spark was struck by Brian May and queen, because yeah. that's where Pat Smear would have learned how to downpick. That's where he would have gotten what becomes lexicon Pebble would have been from news of the world. Yeah, I could dig that. Definitely. You know, and you know, you know, Freddie Mercury you, as a, as a front man singer, um, you know, he had the, the, he almost had like a punk thing going on, like in like, um, kind of like in a Ziggy glam seventies way, you know, like he wasn't sure. like the typical hard rock singer either, you know, a lot of charisma, no. you know, kind of lent totally. itself more to, to sort of a proto metal punk kind of, uh, like focal point of the band. Definitely. And, you know, once I kind of got onto that stuff, you know, when I was little, little, I was, I mean, I've always been just obsessed with music. There's a theory that, you know, something kind of snapped in my head when I was a kid and I, I, you know, I ended up like translating music in a different way. And, um, but so, you know, through the, you know, you you get into Kiss, and then all of a sudden, Kiss is playing disco songs. And even as a little kid, you don't understand that. You're like, well, what what happened to Parasite? Like, why are you playing, you know, digga 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 digga? You know, why are you playing this? And you know, but how come you're not playing Parasite anymore? And like, you're a little kid, you don't really understand that. And and I'm hearing these murmurs. Cause, you know, I, I had young parents in the seventies or whatever and about this thing called punk. But, you know, like when I saw it on television, like what was being called punk, I just had a feeling that that wasn't really what it was. Right. Right. Like when I saw the episode of chips with the punk band who had a song, I dig pain. I knew I was being fucked off. Like I knew that wasn't it. 
You know what I mean? Like I, you could just smell that it was disingenuous. You're like, that's not what it is. And you know, when people are telling me, you know, like I'm hearing the radio, like new wave on the radio is kind of happening at that point. And so, you know, I'm listening to the clash, uh, whatever they played on the radio, which would have been like combat rock, like not, you know, we're not hearing like white riot or, you know, anything like that. You know, you're hearing like rock the Casbah and, you know, train in vain or whatever. But so I kind of had been told that was punk and I, you know, and I'm trying to keep up with all this stuff and I'm following, but I'm also digging on early eighties metal at that point. You know, I'm listening at that point. I mean, I'm listening to Van Halen already. Yeah. Definitely. I definitely was listening to Dio. I definitely a little bit iron Maiden, not as much as I wish I had. I wish I had listened to Maiden more when I was a little kid, because I feel like it would have had a, a bigger impact on me. Uh, Def Leppard's first three albums is embarrassing. He said it is in some ways. Oh, no, man. Really no, dude. High and Dry is a classic record, man. That's a record rules. And and On Through uh, the Night, too, is awesome, too. Those are great, man. And then um, definitely Quiet Riot. When, you know, that came out, like, I, I managed to talk my mom into letting me go see him at the Hampton Coliseum with Saga and Scandal. And uh, Quiet Riot was great. You know, I saw the Metal Health Tour when I was a little kid. But this, I'm not like, what I'm leading to is what the important part is. I was really into all this music and I'm looking for this thing called punk. And I'm hearing rumors of it. I knew that there was a thing, you know, that the Ramones were called punk. But that kind of just sounded like souped up rock and roll to me. But I liked it. I mean, I, I thought it was cool. And basically what happens next, and then we, we'll go, this is how we go to extreme music here, is, is that in 1985, I was a little kid. I was, I was really into Motley Crue. Motley Crue had kind of changed. They weren't doing Shout at the Devil anymore. They were now, you know, wearing lingerie and all this. I mean, like, I don't give a fuck if you wear lingerie. That's not the problem. It just wasn't heavy anymore. It right. was like kind of. It just wasn't dark. It wasn't evil. It wasn't heavy. It wasn't hedonistic. It was just kind of silly. And a bunch of kids in my neighborhood that were older than me had started skateboarding. And um, I had always been super fascinated with skateboarding. And when I saw them the first time jumping ramps and stuff, I couldn't believe that people like skated. And I, you know, I'm, you know, when you're talking about me as like an 11 or 12 year old kid, I'm like, I, you know, I have to be over there. I have to find out what this is about, you know? And then, one of the kids that was older than me, who's a couple years older than I was, he literally told me, he says, you know what? He says, you'd be really all right if it wasn't for all that Motley Crue shit. And he hands me a cassette tape. And I went home. And on this cassette tape, on one side, it said millions of dead cops. And on nice. the other side, it said everything went black. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Yep, I, now we're talking. I went, I went into my bedroom as a little kid. I was 12 years old. It was... Uh, it would have been like August or September of 85. Uh, I was just starting junior high school. I was absolutely positive that I wasn't cool. And I went in my room and I closed the door and I put on side one of millions of dead cops. And I was physically pressed back in my chair. I never heard anything like that come out of a radio. I mean, it was intense. It was now that drummer sounded like he was about to die. And then you've got this guy screaming about 
you know, everything from dead cops and that the police are corrupt and an indictment of Reagan and the corporate, you know, fuck up world raping bullshit in Central America and all the way to I remember, which is extremely haunting when he's talking about his friend Tate Ryan shot in the back uh, in Tampa, Florida on his first event burglary. And I'm a little kid. I'm hearing this. I can't believe that there's anything this real yeah. in the world. And I'm blown the fuck away. Like I'm never going to be the same. And then I flipped the tape over and I listened to about the first half of everything went black. And what I remember the most about it was first of all, that I was afraid of it because I'd never heard anyone say, I don't like, I don't care. I'd never heard anyone say that I have no values. I had never heard anyone dare say, fuck the police. I had never heard anyone, you know, actually scream and talk about being bummed out or like depression. And then my rules comes on. And the the line as a little kid that sticks with me even now was, is that, you know, you offer me cool. Well, I reject it. Yeah. And I, and I literally stood up, rolled my chair over to the wall, climbed up in the air. I took down every single Motley Crue poster on my wall. I walked into the living room and I put them in the fireplace. I collected all my heavy metal records that I had as a little kid. I put them in a plastic bag. I took them to school the next day. I handed them off to a friend that was into that sort of thing. And I absolutely changed in that room. I went from being a victim to a monster in about 20 minutes was the most important thing short of my kids being born that happened in my lifetime. It's the basis for everything that I've accomplished happened in that room in 20 minutes. Now the, the cassette, was that something that somebody made for you? This cassette, was it a friend that passed that on to you? Yeah. That's, Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I wore it out and I wore that tape out and it wouldn't even play, you know? Yeah, those, uh, those gifts that people bestow on you over time, man, that's like, that's how I, you know, essentially that's a story from the 80s, you know? It's um, someone handed me, it was Suicidal Tendencies and uh, and Circle Jerks. And then um, oh, yeah. it was uh, Two Bad Brains records. It was all, but they were just on cassettes. And then it was the Let Them Eat Jelly Beans uh, discography. Oh, compilation. I had that one. Yeah, I mean, the jerks, there's the best version of Pay to Come is on that compilation. Exactly. The Bad Brains. I mean, that that was a big one, too. We had that one early on on a tape with the TSOL EP and God We Trust. Let Them Eat Jelly Beans, a band from Virginia called Graven Image that if you get a chance, you should check out their seven inch. It's it just, yes, I, I agree completely. Like that, that era of finding a cassette and sometimes the mystery cassette where you didn't even know who the hell you were listening to, but it was amazing. And then you went on a quest to try to figure out what's that, you know? Yeah, definitely. You know, back then um, you would go to some space be it a record store or whatever that would have these flyers and these, these pieces of paper would be there and you would see a bunch of names of bands and half of the time it would literally, I went to the gig cause I thought the names were cool. Like the, for example, oh, the first, yeah. the first time I saw Rorschach, I, I thought it was a cool name and they were playing with a band called born against. 
and that name was awesome just in and of itself and that literally is why i went to the shows because they had cool names and uh but but yeah just being able to find stuff and find out about things like these cassettes these mixtapes things like that that's really kind of a, a an entry point for a lot of people i think and and I kind of feel like that stuff's coming coming back in a certain way, uh, not necessarily cassettes being handed out, but I think that a lot of people with playlists and whatnot are um, are sort of curating. That's that's still kind of like a, a second generation or or a return to that mixtape idea. Oh, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I think that the you know, in the in the, the world of the streaming or whatever, that that, that that's the the mix the mixtape of the modern age. And I, you know, and you were talking about like going to shows because of like a name or, or seeing something interesting. I, I can remember the Connection Hall in Norfolk, which is just a little tiny place. That in the late eighties there were shows, and I mean, it literally didn't even matter who was playing. Like, if there was a show, like, I was going to it, because at that time, I mean, there weren't, like, hordes of punks or, or you know, in, in school. They, they, everyone sort of congregated wherever the gig was, and that was, like, the one day a week where you sort of, like, were with your people and not, you know, walking down the street and, you know, having bottles thrown at you or, or whatever have you, so... And so I discovered a lot of bands by accident. Like I remember that I went and saw Toxic Reasons, and that was a that was one that was like a discovery. I didn't know really anything about them. Like I just went to their gig, and they were you know fucking great. So I would just go to anything, you know. Like if if there was a show at you know a venue that I knew, and it was like a punk rock show or whatever, like I, I would go. Like I would go on you know all age. I mean, but you know I spent a lot of my early teen years trying to sneak into bars to see shows i was pretty obsessed with live music in general at that point anyway you know so i would go there was a gig i was definitely trying to go to it and now it's funny that people ask me about going to gigs or whatever and unless it's something i really want to see like i'm probably not going because i probably good i probably go to more shows a year than most people that I know, I probably see more live concerts. And so it's like when I'm not working or I'm not doing that, I'm, that's probably like the last thing I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, when you're out on the road all the time, you know, and you're in that environment constantly when you're home, yeah. you just want some quiet time and, you know, watch Netflix and chill out and stuff, you know? I think with, you know, getting the progression to, more extreme music would have definitely well I was a huge Bad Brains fan really early on and then from that The Accused were my favorite band of all time I absolutely was just completely obsessed with The Accused uh, particularly the first three records through The Accused I get Creator and Boybod. That's how I found those. And then I have, it's like, it, you know, a lot of people say this now uh, because it's in a way it's become chic to say this, but it's really true. Um, 
I think in about 87 or 88, a friend of mine, we called him Little Chris. He was this metal guy in Tampa I knew. He played Morbid Tales for me. Yeah. And Morbid Tales sounded like punk rock music to me. Exactly. And I absolutely loved it. And years later, when I became friends with Tom, you know, and as a sound engineer for him or whatever, I asked him about some of that or whatever. And he kind of like, you know, led on to me that Morbid Tales, particularly, well, the beginning of Morbid Tales, it's plain day, but it means more when it comes from his mouth was, you know, heavily influenced by discharge. So oh, yeah. it, it now in retrospect makes sense to me that that was the record where I was like, Oh, this is good. Like, this is really great. You know, like I'm, I'm into this. And because of that is when I started listening to what you would call speed metal or whatever. But the game changer for where as far as like getting the death metal goes, there were a lot of things I liked, but in 1988, I think it was, or 89 summer, probably summer of 89. If I'm being honest, uh, David Vincent gave me the Viking come demo, the unholy blasphemies rehearsal demo on one tape and gave me abominations of desolation on another tape and a live morbid angel show from that point and that was so funny to me because me and the bass player of eulogy were at west shore mall and we put in my kingdom come and as soon as it started like we ejected it like we were scared of it (laughs) we were like like what the fuck is that and like i remember like going to push the tape back into the car player and being timid about it like i don't know what's gonna happen here and, you know, and, and then getting into it. So then, you know, you hear abominations and you're hearing, you know, like demons attack with hate. And we're little punk rock kids. So, of course, we're snickering at it going, ah, that's stupid. But you keep rewinding the yeah, fucking take. Exactly. And you keep playing it over and over again. And then comes alters. Yeah. And... I mean, we were listening to a lot of stuff at that time. I mean, Blood Feast was one that we really loved. Uh, we were definitely listening. I was a huge Septic Death fan. Like, I still love Septic Death. Yeah. But Alters of Madness just, I mean, it set the bar for everything, everywhere, in my opinion. When I heard that album, I was like, holy shit. But that was very intimidating. Like, I want to say that in this in this instance for a little kid, for a kid that's like 16 years old and forming a band, I wasn't for technical when I first started playing, I wasn't really good in that way. I think I was better just because I was persistent because I played all the time, but I wasn't technically good. So, you know, when I heard spiritual healing, that's like kind of scary to me. I'm like, fuck, I can't play like that. Oh yeah, with, um, you finally you get this guy who could who could have been in Rush playing extreme music. Right. Yeah, it's yeah, there's definitely. I mean, actually, even the Morbid Angel stuff was like that was over my head. Yeah, that it was, was way over my, my head reach. too, man. And like when I first heard that stuff, because like the same feeling when I first heard death metal, I was terrified the same way I was terrified when I first heard Black Flag because. 
it was but there it was the same sort of emotion because i was like man i don't know if i like this or not you know and then the death metal stuff was like man i i can't even understand what the point of a lot of this stuff was and then when i started getting into it i was like man i should have been practicing more if i want to play this style of music you know because like up until that point i was just sort of into like you know punk music and hardcore and that kind of stuff that was more about feel, you know what I mean, than technical ability. And um, well, I think, yeah, I mean, definitely, absolutely. And I, I think that Morbid Angel is one of the bands, though, at least for a time, that really insisted on feel. Like I think that that's one of the places where I saw feeling and technique mix. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's why I loved them so much. I think earlier on, they were the first death metal band that I really embraced was Morbid Angel. Yeah. Well, I, I was intimidated by that. And I mean, it didn't help that, you know, by the time they came back from their first tour, I mean, we were friends with them. You know, we were allowed to go and sit in on their rehearsals when they were getting ready for blessed. And we're watching this, you know, I mean, not to sound like the old man, but I was sitting in the corner of a warehouse watching Pete Sandoval play Day of Suffering in 1990. You know, I mean, like, and you know, it's mind blowing. It's fucking mind blowing. The death metal that really was important to me as far as being able to move on and play though, I want to give the, proper respect to this there was a band from maryland called ex mortis and they had two demos the original lineup of them that was called immortality's end and the other one was called i think descent into chaos and i love those two demos i still think brian working was a great vocalist a great guitarist but the important thing about those to me was that it was death metal, it was underground, and I could play it. Yeah, Like, I heard that, and I was like, I, I can do that. And it's not, I'm not saying that it was not technically proficient. That's not what I mean at all. It just happened to click with me in a way where I was like, I understand that. Okay, wait, I can do this. I can be a part of this. And it was those two demos for me that were super important because – that's kind of where I was able to transition from just being a fan of this extremely crazy music to going, okay, well I can jump in and be a part of this. I, I can, I can contribute something. And it was, and it was because of those demos. And that's important for me to say, cause they were hugely influential on me. Yeah. I'm not overly familiar with them. I mean, I'm familiar with the name, but it's not, um, I got, I'm trying to, I'm drawing a blank on what they actually sound like. It sounds a little bit like what real early, like Gorguts, uh, like before considered dead, like demo era Gorguts, or like um, I think you know it feels a little like Scream Bloody Gore. There's okay. a little bit of that in there. Uh, it, it, it's you know classic underground, you know late '80s death metal, but probably better at it than a lot of people were, and they were they were really good. Um, but I mean, you know what it was like. I mean, the freshman class, that's what I call it. Like when Roadrunner and Eric signed that first batch of bands and like at the end of the 80s and the early 90s, that first 
group of records that came out of there. I mean, the, you know, the Roadrunner, obviously, we're talking about the obituary, the Deicide, the Sepultura, and then the with Earache. At the same time, Carcass and Napalm Death and uh, Entombed and Morbid Angel and Bolt Thrower and Godflesh and, you know, who, who knows who I'm forgetting at that point. And then with Peaceville also dropping, you know, Paradise Lost, that first group of records was, I mean, I mean, Jesus, man, like Dawn of Possession, like Immolation coming out in 90, what, 91? Yeah. Late 91. I mean, you know, soon to be followed by Onward to Golgotha by Incantation, which is what's still one of the darkest, just evil, punishing records that's ever been put to tape. Like, in my opinion, like, Onward to Golgotha is a fucking destroyer to this day. The sound, the riffs, the vocals, I love that record so much. Well, another thing about Incantation is I feel like that band specifically that band seems to be influencing a whole legion of new bands right now that I'm just, you know, that I'm, I'm listening to currently, you know, I mean, I hear there's a British band grave miasma that to me sounds very much influenced by incantation. There's, you know, bands like Diocletian that to me take that incantation vibe and, and, and push it into a more extreme, like, you know, warlike kind of evil, like dimension, you know, and, and I don't think that incantation gets like the respect they deserve for being such a, a heavy influence on like underground metal. Well, I mean, if they don't, they definitely should because they're that that's an important one. I mean, if, if you know, I mean, you know, for anybody that, I mean, especially if you're like our age that know anything about like the demo scene and the tape trading scene and, and the early, the earlier like American, especially Northeastern movement. I mean, incantation, immolation, Gorphobia, Revenant, Ripping Corpse, you know, Ex Mortis, even earlier than that, Malfador. I mean, that's important. I mean, as far as like the progression of this music, it is, it's, that's an important thing. And incantation had a way of writing riffs early on that just, it just just roll. It reminds me of like a slow rolling wave of fire. Yeah, that's <laughs> what that's what Homeward to Golgotha reminds me of. And um, even the demos, like the Profanation, I think mm-hmm. the Seven Inch was called. It it's all fantastic stuff. And if people are being influenced, then that's a good thing to me. I think that's a real good thing because. Even at its darkest, there's a lot of feeling in those riffs and a lot of groove and a lot of vibe. And, you know, I mean, as a guy that works in this industry or whatever, if I had to say something that I really wish that I could see more of or bring back, I would say that it's like atmosphere. And I don't mean long drones with keyboards and feedback. I mean, riffs that are haunting, that create a feeling. Actually, there's a band called Dead Congregation. I don't know if you're familiar with them from Greece. That uh, yeah, yeah. They they. Uh, I, I my recommendation is check them out. I mean they, you know, they're technical, but they're they're not overly technical. They're into writing songs, and they're brutal, 
but they also have a very keen ear for atmosphere and melody and the melodies are fucking discordant and and just disjointed sounding but they they create these like epic songs and i think that I, i've seen them twice they've come to the united states and played in brooklyn twice and i've went to both shows and they both times they blew my mind and uh I, I could see the the two things that come to mind is definitely that that incantation influence and also early morbid angel like sort of you put both of them together but modernized it a little bit and and this and they definitely took that that ball and ran with it into their own playing field like they've got a whole other thing going on besides just their influences. I'm, oh, I'm definitely, I just wrote it down. I'm totally going to check yeah, it out. Like, dead congregation. That's great. So where are we at on your list, man? Oh, well, I mean, after altars, um, like I was saying, that's, I, I only like got up to like the early nineties oh, with geez. the list to, okay. to the end, you know, to the entrance where I got into it because from there, everything, was great. I mean, I, I was hugely into At the Gates. Uh, I, I thought the Gardens of Grief EP was amazing. I still think it is. But uh, as much as a lot of people really dislike it, I feel like, well, I'm not going to go there yet. In 1992, uh, we had been told about this band by the guys in Morbid Angel, particularly Pete had told us. And we got an opportunity to play a show with them at the Ritz in Tampa. And we got to see, and I say this with the utmost seriousness, the mighty fucking Ripping Corpse. Oh, hell yeah. Definitely. Yes. And we played Ripping Corpse and it's the kind, that was the kind of situation where we knew what was coming we're backstage, you know, meeting them because we're, we're opening. They're all super cool. They're hilarious. Uh, as crazy as we've been told they are, just in their mannerisms or, you know, mentioning the word acid and somebody be like, what? I'll take acid. <laughs> you know, it, um, and we got on stage and we played and they were kind of in the wings. I remember Brandon really being stoked on Clayton, um, our drummer. And being like, you're the fastest drummer I've ever seen, you know, like being really amped on our music. And we were young. Eulogy was kind of a band that I don't really, I, I never really felt like we played as well as we could have that night. But then we walked out into the audience and the five of us stood in a row and everyone's mouth was hanging open and we got, and everyone got taken to school. Like, I don't know that the records necessarily do them the justice they deserve, but the records are great. And so are the demos, but seeing them live and seeing like Sean and Eric, just playing the craziest, most maniacal, strange sounding music with, you know, these pinch harmonic fast picking that they're doing as they're going up, you know, from the bridge to the neck of the guitar and, extremely technical but like i mean i don't know that i could have sat down in a chair and played it let alone be bent over just going berserk on stage and you know rutan like 
his hair like hanging to the floor nearly hunched over and like sort of like crawling up to the microphone just you know these backing vocals that are straight out of hell not to mention that brandon is back there i mean you want to talk about like the sparks of this extreme drumming i mean if you're not mentioning brandon yeah then you're not you're not telling the whole story because all you've got to do is listen to dreaming with the dead and listen to like anti-God and listen to those doubles at the beginning that are clearly microphones. I mean, he's flying. I mean, flying. And not to mention just being extremely tasteful, having some really nice syncopation and everything. And so Ripping Corpse was a gigantic one. Like we loved that band. And, um, you know, we were lucky enough to, you know, make friends with them and stuff. And then, uh, you know, on into and including when Eric came down to do Morbid Angel. And so Ripping Corpse was huge. And then I kind of opened my mind around that point. And I started listening to a lot of other stuff, everything from, you know, the Mahavishnu Orchestra to, Garden. I mean, I just kind of was all over the place. And then uh, I didn't know it at the time, but a friend of mine made a record that was extremely important. And a lot of people really didn't like it, but I think that Heartwork by Carcass was a really big step production-wise for what was possible with a metal record. Just I, in sound. Sound-wise, yes. I'm not. That's not my go-to record, man, for sure. But this, the production on that, like, actually, that's the thing that stood out the most when I first heard that record was how good it sounded. Well, that's kind of the thing is, is that, like, I mean, I know, strangely enough, the gentleman that I'm speaking of is my friend Keith Andrews, who was the engineer on that uh, with Colin producing. And I was at lunch one day. We worked together. He's a brilliant tech. And... Uh, someone at the lunch table said, oh, I got that copy of Heartwork for you to sign. And I looked over at this, you know, proper English gentleman with his little, you know, glasses or whatever. And I was like, why do you need to sign that? And he's like, oh, I was the engineer on that. And I was like, no fucking way. Um, but sound wise, I mean, it's certainly not, you know, it's certainly not symphonies or reek, but sonically, you you're like, okay, well, that's, that's, it's possible for this to go to the next level because at that point, the bar had been set by more sound. Right. As far as like what, you know, what metal, what was the best that could be done with this crazy music? And that was, you know, what Scott was doing. And, um, I think that he did a fine job for what he was working with. I can't even imagine being in those circumstances to be totally honest with you. Yeah. That, but that, there's, like, there should be a documentary about that whole time, time frame specifically about Morris sound and Scott Burns. Yeah. You know, and I, I got the opportunity to speak with him on the telephone. Um, maybe I guess it was like a year and a half ago. It had to do with the gruesome records. And I, I got to ask him a lot of questions and he was like the nicest dude ever. I mean, I remember him from back in the day, but Eulogy never worked with him and he was kind of a busy guy. So we didn't really cross paths all that much. 
Uh, but later on in life, you know, probably when I knew the right questions to ask or whatever, I, I really valued that conversation with him. It was really eye-opening to, to get to talk to him. But I also, you know, on the subject of all these records and everything, you know, I, I wonder sometimes, for instance, if I was Pat Burnett and the germs came across my desk I wonder if I would have been smart enough to see what was there or if I would have been like the majority of people and blown it off as garbage. And and I, I like to think that I would have been smart enough to see what was there. And the reason that I draw the parallel is because that's who Scott Barnes was to me. That's as an outsider looking in, that's, what's so interesting and important about that is that like there was a demo from a band here in Tampa called the guff that was earlier, that was early 89 or whatever. And if you listen to it, you can hear him figuring out what he's about to do. You know, like the kick drums, like you, and then, you know, you can, you can just hear what he's about to do. And then he, you know, starts dropping records left and right that, that are listenable. And I, I, I think that's really interesting. I think you're right. Sorry to go off in left field. I think there should be a documentary about him because I think, I think him and the Morris brothers were technically super important as far as finding a way to take this wall of harmonic distortion and make it presentable and, and understandable. And, and I think that they're, the things that they were doing with sampling and, and the way that they were putting samples on a reverse tape so that they could get rid of the latency, like some of the shit that I've heard that they were doing to do kick triggering and stuff as early as like 90, 91. It's insane. I mean, it's insane what they were accomplishing. And uh, I, I agree. Someone should make a movie about it. Yeah, because I mean, you know, every every several years or so, there's like a technical innovation, like a you know, in in a technique way, like with the recording world, where you're able to capture like you know, heavy music or hard rock or death metal or whatever. But you know, when when death metal, because you know, compared to like Metallica and Slayer, which sounded conventional compared to like early Morbid Angel and all those other bands and you know, Cannibal Corpse and whatnot. The ability to capture that music is something that did, there was nothing, there was no template for that, you know? So, you know, people like, like Scott Burns and, and Morris Sound, they, if they hadn't really, I mean, sure, if someone else might have come along, but if they hadn't been at that particular place at that particular time, who knows what would have happened to those bands? You know what I mean? No, I, I, I agree 100%. I, I wonder about that myself sure um i don't i don't know because at other places in the country or in the world there were things happening but it didn't sound like that i yeah. will give credit credit to tracks east in new jersey they they don't get a lot of credit where they should because of things like incantation yeah steve evitz definitely was a big uh, big part of that as well yeah you know, so I, but I agree with you. I, I wonder what would have happened. I think that was more sound was a, 
they were definitely a catalyst for what was going on down here for sure. You know, man, I never got a chance to work at Tracks East, man. That would have that that was like a couple of times we had a budget over the years, and um, it just I never got a chance to work over there. That would have been cool. Definitely. I mean, I always wanted to go there. I mean, I, I just, uh, I mean, I'm fascinated by studios and productions naturally because it's, you know, what I do. And, and you always like wonder like how much of it is some secret, you know, secret technique or how much of it's just naturally inherently like what the space sounds like. Like I wonder that a lot. I wonder if there's, you know, if the engineer has some magic bag of tricks or if that's just what the space sounds like. And I, I would have liked to have seen that myself for sure. Yeah, totally. So we've but, come um, to the, uh, to the conclusion of our allotted time here. Um, is there anything you want to promote that's upcoming for yourself? Well, um, I just have been doing a lot of records this year. Um, I, I hope everybody, you know, is checking out Fulcrum Morte and uh, definitely, you know, go listen to the new Cannabis Corpse record because I mixed that for uh, Phil and those dudes and the new 1349 and um, definitely check those things out. And uh, if you can, uh, if you see us coming by, come check out Fulcrum Morte and they, you know, say what's up and say hello and certainly come on out and see 1349 and, and, uh, yeah, I'm not super great at self promotion. Well, are there any uh, like websites or social media for Pulcro Morte like uh, that people can can, oh, yeah. uh, can visit you guys at? Absolutely, there's the Bandcamp, which is obviously pulcromorte.bandcamp.com. There's our Facebook, which is Pulcromorte Metal, Facebook.com/slash/pulcromorte-metal, and there is our Instagram, which is at Pulcromorte. And you can definitely get in touch with us through any of those things, or you can go to my engineering page, which is Jared Pritchard engineer on Facebook. And those are kind of the best ways to keep up with whatever I happen to be up to on any given day. And it's usually interesting. So definitely follow if you can. Awesome. And it was great uh, catching up with you, Jared. And I'll, I'll be seeing you at one of those 1349 shows when you come through town. Yeah, excellent. Like for sure. Like, yeah, you know, shoot me a text. You know, like, be like before, and uh, let's let's uh, meet up or whatever. Okay. Awesome. Thanks a lot. That's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio weekly podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. The show is available on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio, streaming on the web, iOS, or Android. For one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews with artists, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care.